Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 John at the back of your Bible. 1 John, I will be reading 1 John chapter 2, verse 14b. I wrote to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you show mercy in the moving of your Holy Spirit in allowing me to be a conduit of this truth through teaching. May I say what the text says. May I say what your word is teaching us about the blood earnest importance of your scripture in us. Therefore, protect me from error, and if there is error, protect hearts from hearing it. Oh, would you cause these minds to be awake, to not be bored with the Word of God, but to yearn, to be moved and changed by it. We are all so desperate. So do this, Father, for the glory of your name in us this morning. Amen. If I were to ask you what you think the most urgent need in the body of Christ, in the church world today is, what would come to your mind? Is it sexual purity? Because we live in a world that is just inundated and bombarded with sex outside of marriage in our culture. Or is it more faithful service of members of churches in their local churches? Or would it be more generosity in finances in a culture and a world that is all about hedonistic fun and play and amusement and entertainment and then die? Or would it be better evangelism? Or more investment in world missions? Or or would it be just more loving behavior within the churches toward one another in the body of Christ? Or would it be more work on our marriages? More conscious wanting to grow in Christ and being better husbands and being better wives, which is there in order to point to Jesus Christ? Or would it be More classes, more teaching on how to raise children. This is hard work. How do you bring them up in the ways of the Lord? How do you discipline them? How do you protect them and then not protect them, but inundate them from the culture all around? Okay, I can can keep on going with suggestions of, of desperate, urgent needs in the church. And I am not belittling any of these. They are important and they're huge. But I contend this morning 
there is a sense in which all of those urgent needs are really symptoms of something else that is lacking in the church. The one thing the church has always needed, needs now, and will need, the one thing that every one of us who professes to know Jesus is desperate for is a Here it is. A deeper knowledge of God. To know Him better. I did not say to know about Him. I said to know Him better. Look down at our text. Second part of verse 14. Chapter 2 of 1 John. As you look at it, see if it isn't so. Here. This text tells us who claim to know Jesus that there is a strength. There is an empowerment that is directly related to overcoming the evil one. And that strength and that power comes from the Word of God. Not, not just that. Uh-uh. But the Word of God dwelling, or abiding, living in you. See it? I write to you, young men, because you are strong and, and now that's a Some of the Greek students in here, that's a chi, and. But here, it's what we call an explanatory chi. You're strong. Why are you strong? Because the Word of God remains or abides in you. And, thus what? You have overcome the evil one. So what I want to do this morning, I think it's fairly simple. I want to consider first... What does John mean by overcome the evil one? And then secondly, okay, how? How does he say we are to be doing this? So first, you have overcome the evil one. That that overcoming there, that verb... In the original, we don't have this in English, and it's really hard, therefore, to translate it in English. But it means not just, in the past you've overcome, and now it doesn't matter what happens in your life. It's, it's the verb tense of, you have and are presently overcoming the evil one. Now, what I want to contend is, what John is getting at is there, there this overcoming of the evil one comes in two stages. First, what Christ did for us, He did it. But that's not it. But because of what Christ did, something's happening in those who actually belong to Him. They are in the process of overcoming. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 8 for 
for a second and listen to what John says there about the evil one, about Satan, about the devil, about our enemy, about our adversary. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, there's a sinning, unrepentant lifestyle, religious or not. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now here it is, here it is. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus came, was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he did. He fulfilled that first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis. Remember right after the fall? The seed of the woman shall bruise or crush your head. The serpent, Satan. Jesus in His ministry in Luke 10.19 used that imagery saying, Behold, now to sinners like us, to His disciples, Behold, I have given to you authority to tread on serpents and on scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And so, the crushing of Satan's head by Jesus, this crushing, this overcoming Him, happens in two stages. First, in Jesus Himself. Then, because of that and the work of Jesus in those who are His, it's happening in us by His power. I mean, for instance, the Hebrew writer in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 concerning Jesus came to crush Satan. He came to overcome him on our behalf. Writes, since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same. Became a human being. Why? So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is, the devil. And then Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, Jesus came and He disarmed, took away the swords and the missiles and the guns. He disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. And then Revelation tells us the consummation of Satan's defeat isn't yet, but it will come. He will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. Jesus has accomplished the undoing and the overcoming of the evil one. But what's also true is that is happening in process in our individual Lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. For instance, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, we read, And they, fellow Christians, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, explained by this. Because they did not love their lives even unto death. 
It's happening in us. Paul in Colossians 1.13 writes, Jesus has delivered us from the dominion, reigning, controlling us, the dominion of darkness, and He's transferred us. In other words, there's a real experience in those who are being saved. They've been transferred into the kingdom, the reign, the rule of a dictator, a benevolent dictator over us. The kingdom of His beloved Son. So, here's the first point about overcoming. Jesus has come, and He has dealt the death blow for us over Satan, over the evil one, over the enemy of our soul. And thus, second stage, in between now, this very moment, if you are in Christ, between now and your death, or the second coming of Jesus, whichever comes first, He is giving victories in your daily life in overcoming the evil one. And He's doing it by empowering you. He's doing it by causing you to be strong by the strength of the Word. So that's what overcoming here means. You take the book as a whole. Let me spell it out one more time. John has been contending. Here's the Christian life. It is walking. That means living, decision-making daily by walking in the light, not in the darkness. Chapter 2. It is those who are obeying God's commandments in Jesus Christ. It's those who are, chapter 1, confessing their sins. It's those who have sin and they choose it, but they hate it and they're in this battle. It's those who are wrestling against themselves, called their own flesh and sinful nature. It's those who are wrestling against the evil one who wants to put every roadblock of evil desire before us. Okay, that's what John thinks Overcoming the evil one is walking in the light. Love you. Okay. How do we do this? How do we fight this fight? It's right there. Flow for verses. You're strong in order to overcome the evil one. How? Because the Word of God abides remains that's what the word meno means resides inside of you see the apostle John clearly has Jesus' words in mind doesn't he does anybody does it sound familiar you're strong because The Word of God abides in you. He clearly is referring to what Jesus said when John was sitting there. John is the one who recorded Jesus' words for us in the Gospel of John chapter 15. Turn there. He's clearly referring to Jesus' direct words in the flesh. John 15, verses 7 to 8, Jesus said, If 
you abide, remain, same word here, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So, if it's true then, what I have said, if overcoming the evil one has to do with walking in the light, living in an obedience of trust and faith in God's Word and in His commands, It's hating our sin. It's fighting against our own sinful desires called the flesh. If it is resisting the evil one, if that's true, then notice what Jesus says here. Because this is a parallel passage. The abiding Word in us, according to Jesus, is producing something. It's producing. It's producing powerful praying. If you abide in me and my words are not on the bedstand by you or in the cover of that leather book, but they're in you, ask whatever you will. And what else is it producing? Fruit. Fruit bearing. The opposite of walking in darkness. Resisting the flesh of anger and bitterness and envy and jealousy and backbiting and lack of love. It's producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is producing the opposite of those. Does that make sense? No. Thank you. Notice Jesus said here, if my words abide in you, then what? Then the result is intimacy with God in your prayer, and it is Holy Spirit fruit bearing. Now, here's my contention. Put it together. That dynamic in relationship with God that Jesus is talking about, they're in you, you will be so close in your prayers, fruit will be popping out. Okay? That communion with God is the essence of overcoming the evil one. That's it. And that's exactly what John is saying. Look at the very next verse in our text. Oh, you're strong. You're overcoming the evil one because the Word of God is abiding in you. Do not love the world. Well, how am I going to do that? It's so tempting. Money, things, security, love, being liked, toys, everything around me is constantly saying, love me. Well, because of what he said before, if his words abiding in you, you'll be connected with God. You will love him. You will ask of him. Do not love the world or the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. So, in other words, the key to having Holy Spirit birth, new desires that are against the desires that the world is saying, come hither, come hither and love me and embrace me. 
the key to having new desires for God over against the desires that the evil one wants to constantly put before us is what? The Word of God abiding in Go home and do it. Glad you laughed. What does that mean? What does it mean for it to abide in us? Just stay there in John, John chapter 15 for a moment. Because I think Jesus explains in the context. He's very helpful in what does that mean for the Word to be abiding or alive inside of us. Notice in verses 4 and 5, right before verse 7, right? Jesus just said there almost the same thing. Abide in Me. And I, Jesus, in you. And the result in that text is what? You will bear much fruit. Okay? If I abide, if you abide in me and I, your Savior, abide or live and remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Okay? Then he comes to verse 7. And instead of repeating exactly what he said, he twisted it a little bit, which I think is our key. Same thing. You abide in me. But he didn't go say, and I in you. But he said what? If you abide in me and my words, in verse 7, abide in you. Which I think is Jesus' way of saying what I mean very practically about me abiding in you is that I am living in you, speaking my authoritative word delivered through the prophets and the apostles. Let me remain influence you in your battle daily by being the source of your life through what I say. See that? Letting His Word remain or abide or live in us. It, it's got to mean in this context letting Jesus personally by the Holy Spirit dwell in you. Not done. Speaking Which means that the difference between false Christians and true ones is that the true ones are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Christ. The true ones are listening. They're hearing Jesus' word. See, Jesus is saying, 
Believers are those people who welcome Him into their lives by the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not done. Now watch. Not, yes, I love Jesus. However, I interpret Him. No. He's saying it is those who embrace Me as their Savior who died for them. And, and, and they spiritually are in communion with Me and thus with My Father who is now their Father. And He doesn't mean that in some kind of passive spirituality, weird idea with no direction or commands in the Christian's life. But He means it. Ah, I'm in you. I'm dwelling in you as your authoritative King. I'm, I'm in you speaking the Scripture. I'm in you with the authority of My theology. Is what He's saying. With the authority of My commands that matter more to you than every other commercial reaching out to you to say that's how you'll be happy. Don't love the world. That's what commercials are about. How can we best get people to love our product? And by it, He in those who are indwelt by the Spirit savingly speaking and they're on this journey and this tension as the Word of God gets more and more in them, they find themselves becoming stronger as they see the light of the darkness of their sin and of their fleshly desires. And by Jesus' Word, He means exactly what our text says. Because you are strong and the Word of God binds in you and you've overcome the evil one. He, he means, when he said that, he knows what he means. He means Moses, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and your entire Old Testament. And he knows he means the words he is speaking right then and the words he will give personally to the Apostle Paul someday and to Peter in what we call our New Testament. The Scripture. Let my words not just be known in your head so you can quote them. Let them live in you. Let them abide in you. You know, it is amazing and sad how many times I've heard Christians say, God said to me, God spoke to me. God's leading me this way. Now, I'm not done with that. See, okay, I'm not, I didn't say I had anything against that by itself. God speaks to me all the time. Just open your Bible. But what I mean is when people say that, while at the same time their life is manifesting a disinterest in what we know for sure God has said. That's really dangerous. If you don't take my word for it, take the Apostle Peter's. Chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1 of Second Peter. Peter writes, 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. Ooh, we talk about experience. You want experience? We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now just stop for a second. The Apostle John, our letter of 1 John, and Peter, along with John's brother. Oh, just those three. Witness what he's talking about. They were there when Jesus was transfigured. Peter's not denying that it was a true experience and a miracle of God. So, but listen to him. We were there, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. Okay, Peter heard something that almost never happens, but has happened. God deciding to break through this material world and speak miraculously. Peter says, we heard him speak. He said this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. Now listen to what he says. Having said that, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than that. He means the Scripture. Show that to you in a second. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture just came from Jeremiah's head, but it was by the Holy Spirit or Moses. He's clearly talking about the written Word of God. And there are millions of Christian people who think that true spirituality is measured by their feelings. Keep the sermon to 20 minutes, please. Don't cause me to think about the Word too much. Let's get back to the music. We got five guitars and drums and the voices are beautiful and I feel goosebumps. That's true spirituality. Or I just want to hear special Personal voices from God. 
I know, I know, I got a Bible, but I want to hear God. Uh, you, you have to wait and say, you're just absolutely dead wrong, Joe. But at least the way I intended to say what I just said, and trust me, if you know me and you listen to me long enough, music is really important in the church. And being moved by the Holy Spirit is the Christian experience. And if you have not the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. And there's no such thing about a true Christian who is not actually somehow affected in their desires and their, as Edwards would call them, affections that are moved. They're there. They have to be. The Spirit works. But the way I just described what's happening with so many people within evangelicalism is a deception if it says... Get on with the Word and let's get back to true worship. It's a slippery slope. And if we just follow Jesus, watch them. Watch their relationships. Watch their human sexuality and what they do with it. Watch them long enough down the road. Watch their money giving. Watch their church attendance over the next 15 years. Just watch. Jesus said, the fruit will inevitably prove the root or not. The point is this, that true relationship with God, true intimacy and communion with Jesus is interchangeable and cannot be separated from the Scripture. His Word living, abiding in us. Jesus never comes into people without His authoritative view on things. If He is abiding in us, His Word, His views on the matter are remaining and influencing us. This does not mean mere biblical ideas. Oh, I got that idea. It doesn't mean mere, even orthodox, correct, theological constructions. You can have all that stuff down. I think today, you know, some of you know, I mean, within evangelicalism, okay, oh, there's these reformed Christians. They, they, they're, they're intellectual. And they like to think about the Word. And it's true. And lots of people who loved reformed writings, many of them are almost biblically illiterate. It's like they hardly ever read Paul. They read historical constructions of what others thought. That's not necessarily the word abiding. The word abiding, remember Jesus said right before that, and I abide in you. He means some real, tangible, spirit-moved connection and communion with Himself, with God the Father, through His Word. In other words... 
Having the Word abide in us is not merely memorizing Scripture, though you ought to memorize Scripture. It is not merely knowing verses or theological constructions like we can know and recite the multiplication table. That's not what abiding in us means. Jesus never meant for thinking and theology, about thinking about Scripture to replace fellowship with Him. He meant for your thinking about Scripture to be your fellowship with Him. And there's a huge difference. To walk in the light, to abide in Him and He in you, it means prayerfully going after, pursuing a relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Doing it by means of His Word. Getting into your mind in order that you will understand what Jesus or His apostles and prophets are saying in their context. Why is that part of communion? Because that is necessary in order then to have your heart and affection say, okay, I see it now, and say, I don't like it. It's one thing the Word of God does and is meant to do. But the other, for those of us who are being saved, is I see the beauty and the glory of who you are, Jesus. Oh, you're so good. Yeah, let's play music now because I want to sing it out. That's the essence of the daily walk. For the Word of God to abide in us means to delight in, to be moved by, to be transformed by the truth that our mind, our intellect sees on the pages of Scripture. That is what the Word abiding in you means. And thus you will be overcoming the evil one. Remember, in this context, and if you've been following this series on 1 John, you know John thinks we're all in a battle. He thinks the Christian life is a warfare against sin and against walking in darkness, against disobedience to God. It's a daily, blood-earnest battle. And here he puts this word abiding in you in the context of that battle. In the context of warfare. Because you are strong. You're a strong army. Not weak. you got guns. Or swords. Okay. Shields. You're strong. And the Word of God abides in you. And you have and are overcoming the enemy. The evil one. And what he is saying to every Christian, is that warfare in your life is first fought in the mind, in your thoughts. Then, and this is logically, time-wise it may happen almost at the same time, but then in your heart. 
and in your desires. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians for a second. I want you to listen to Paul. Paul thinks there's a war going on in the soul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse 3, Paul writes, For though we believers and we apostles here in our missionary journeys, for though we walk in the flesh in our mortality, We do not war according to the flesh. Listen to him. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are, as a New American would say, divinely powerful. For the destruction. Now you've got to get this. This is wartime stuff. Destruction of fortresses or strongholds. The enemy is holed up. It's hard to break through in this war. We, get, we want to win the war. But these weapons were given. Destroy the army of the enemy in their fortresses. Listen now. He's not done. He's going to explain. What do you mean, Paul? What is this battle? We are destroying. Wait, stop. Some of us were in churches that taught the battle was this. Just keep waking up every day and saying, Depart from me, Satan. Or demon of lust, please leave. Or something like that while ignoring being indwelt by the Word. Let's go back. Paul says, here's the warfare. This is what we are doing. This is what Paul was about in his warfare on behalf of others, in rescuing people out of darkness, in bringing them into light, in teaching them how to war and wage war in their lives. We are destroying speculations or arguments. There's a lot of arguments in the world. There's a lot of arguments within the church that are wrong. And Paul is saying, here's the warfare. We are hearing, dealing with, and shooting down wrong thinking. Arguments or every lofty opinion raised up against The knowledge of God. And we are taking every intellectual thought captive. Okay, that's, again, you take an enemy, right? We've got a prisoner of war. Take them captive. We take them. We recognize them. We see them in our lives. Those lies that caused you to sin this week. And rationalize Staying in it for that long. We taking the truth of God and taking those thoughts captive, prisoner, and locking them up. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the warfare at its core 
of every Christian's life. And that's exactly, if you've been following, and remember you can just sit and read through 1 John in about 19 minutes. And you know this letter is exactly what John's letter is really all about. You are strong, mighty, because the Word of God is living, dwelling in your mind and in your heart. So that you're walking in the light, not in the darkness. You know His commandments and the beauty of the Gospel. And you say, who else has the words of life? And you follow Him. That's the Holy Spirit working that in you. He says, this is the Christian light. But there's something else in the letter if you know the letter. You're strong. The Word of God is dwelling in you. And you're overcoming the evil one. Here's an example in the letter that John's talking about. You have rejected the false teacher. Because the Word of God dwells in you. And you knew you're hearing something that was askew about Jesus Christ. And did He actually come in the flesh or not? They left. You stood strong. Because you're strong. And you're strong because the truth was remaining in you against false doctrine. He's saying the essence of overcoming the evil one is you listen. You're hearing. You're pondering. You're thinking about the truth. And that is a major weapon in the Christian's war against the evil one. Strength comes by how you think. And what you're thinking about. Weakness comes by how you think and what you're thinking about. What you think about will lead to what you feel. And what you feel will inevitably lead to decisions you make and how you decide this hour to act. Having the Word of God dwell in us is to prayerfully Commune with God by the Spirit. Over the Word. Letting the Word seep. Thinking about the Word. You cannot disconnect true spirituality from the intellect, from what you think. The New Age movement, Eastern mysticism, all of those do it. And it has infiltrated evangelicalism. Be careful. Paul says something stunning in Romans 8. He says, for those who live, okay, this has to do with real everyday life, those who live according to the flesh set their minds. Can't get around it. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they are setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. What are those? They're not, speak to me, O Holy Spirit. He has spoken. The prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has authored 
the inerrant, infallible Word of God. He will never tell you anything contradictory to what is written. It is sufficient. Set your mind on those things. Isn't that what Paul said in Colossians 3? Same thing. Here's the Christian life. Use your mind. Set your mind on the things that are above. He means the book. He means the Gospel. Set your mind on things that are above. Not on the things that are on earth. And that's exactly what John is doing. You're strong because of the Word of God. That's where your mind is and where your heart is. Therefore, do not love the world. Same flow. And so, Paul says to Timothy, and I really do think by implication to every one of us, Timothy, think... Think over what I say. Have written here in 2 Timothy. Think about it. Mull over it. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. See, spiritually strong Christians who are successfully battling in the Christian life, they are those people who have the Word of God abiding in them. If a professing Christian says something like, uh, well, no, I don't know about that. I, I, you know, you got your way, I got my way. You know, I like feeling goosebumps and when music plays and that's what it goes and I talk to God and it's about the extent of it. Those who think True spirituality can be had apart from the meaning on the pages of Holy Scripture and thus thought about and received and embraced. They are deceived about what true spirituality is. See, if those people protest to the Apostle Paul, when he says, think about what I say. So I don't want to think like that. Come on, Paul. Wrestle over your intended meaning here and what you meant and come to theological conclusions. I mean, besides, everyone doesn't agree, so why? I don't want to think. I just want to worship. I just want to have a zeal for Jesus and do whatever I'm supposed to do. I think Paul would respond with something like Romans 10 too. There really is. I understand that you're a passionate person and you want passion. There is a red-hot zeal for God that is not according to knowledge. And in that context, if you know your Bible, it was leading the people he was talking about to eternal damnation. And they were zealous. 
A lot of people have this weird idea that thinking, asking questions of the Bible, okay, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that. It means that, that using your mind somehow is antithetical to true worship or passion and affection towards Jesus. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think Paul, I think the Apostle John, you know what they would say to that? That is not the case with those who are born again. That's not the case of those who are born of God and have the Word of God dwelling in them. In fact, I think Paul would say, what are you talking about? Don't say that about my life, Paul would say. Paul would say, the the vigorous exercise of the mind in spiritual things and truths is what causes me to boil for worship of God. After unfolding what we call now the 11 chapters of the greatest writing from a human hand in history over God and His ways, he couldn't end it without saying, from Him and through Him. Back unto Him be the glory forever and ever and ever. At the end of Romans 11. The truth abiding in you through thinking and loving it is the fire of true worship. It is in reading in hearing and understanding the Holy Scripture, that God is actually unveiling His glory, which is the object of true worship. Now, I'm closing in four minutes, promise. I can hear, I've been around for 33 or so years in evangelicalism, I can hear objections. I can hear professing Christians thinking, no, I don't buy what you're trying to really say this morning. It's going too far. I believe the Bible. I just think we should spend so much time, like you're talking about, really thinking deeply about what it means. We should just believe the Bible and live it. To which I have a question. Believe what? Live how? Or no, believe, believe the Bible. Believe what about the Bible? You know, believe what you know the Bible says. I read the Bible. Read the Bible. That's good. I believe in reading the Bible. Okay. When you say read the Bible, what, what do you mean? Do you mean that make sure you got a light on in the house so that it can bounce off the pages and your eyes are open and cornea and all that stuff works so the light hits the pages and you can tell there's, 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 there's white background and it's got a bunch of black marks on it. And so in other words, just read the Bible means open it and recognize there's black marks on the page. 
Is that what you mean? Well, no, I don't really... Okay. No, I mean, I've I got to be able to read it in my language so I can... Ooh, oh, now they're getting in trouble. So, so I can understand the letters that make up words and the words that are connected to other words that make phrases and clauses and sentences and how sentences are connected. Now, in other words, I guess I'm saying read the Bible and believe what it means. How do you know what it means? I just told you, I read it. I know, I guess I don't really think in all those grammatical things in my head like a teacher might do teaching English or something, like syntax and a causal clause. But I guess I'm getting meaning because actually I'm doing that because I do it all day long when I speak to people. I'm seeing the connections of words and sentences and I make decisions about what it means. Okay. And that's all I mean. Thinking... Asking questions are the only ways that we will understand what Moses meant, what Paul or the Apostle John or Luke meant. It's the only way you will accurately interpret this sermon this morning is by thinking about it, wrestling with it, maybe asking questions about it. But that's all takes activity, of the mind. Here's the reality. Go back to that person who says, well, I just want to do it. No. That process, every person does it. Every Christian does it. You either do it well or you do it poorly. And it can be destructive to your life. The Word of God Actually, 66 writings in this book. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Let this Word dwell. Make its home in your mind and in your heart, in your desires, in your affections. Read it attentively. Read it well, think through it. Let it live within you and challenge your daily flesh. And here's the point of the sermon of John's text. And by that, be empowered to overcome the evil one. Be empowered to delight in worship the God of your salvation. Be blown away by the awesome beauty and desirableness of God the Father and God the Son unveiled in this book. As John says, because you are strong and the Word of God dwells and remains in you, you have overcome and are overcoming the evil one. Close your eyes, please. I'm going to pray in a second. And as we're singing, if you are a baptized believer, feel free to take of the bread and the cup and hold them and we will be partaking together. 
we will be applying this sermon in our ingesting the living Word of God in this Lord's Supper. Let Him work. Father, would You reignite for some a passion for Your Word, a hunger to know it, a desperateness to, to beat it until meaning flows from Your Holy Scripture in their daily lives. And would You cause our hearts to melt before it to the glory of Your Son, Jesus, for the sake of His holy name and for the sake of overcoming the evil one in our daily lives.